When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, welcome to the uh, review. This one is for the presidency. Uh, so we're still in unit two on this one, which is interactions among the branches. Um, we did Congress, uh, now we're doing the president. Now, uh, if you're in class, or not if you're in class, but if you were in class, I, I, we often, I always combine the president and the bureaucracy. However, I'm going to do the two podcasts separately. So we're not going to really talk too much about the bureaucracy, but just know the president is in charge of the bureaucracy and most things go through, um, through them. Okay. Uh, but there are, uh, four topics that we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the roles and powers, uh, checks on the presidency, expansion of presidential power, and then presidential communication. Um, Congress one went way longer than I wanted it to. So I'm going to try and, um, just stick to the stuff that's in the, the CED book, the college board stuff, and uh, make sure we don't go too far too long for this one. all right let's jump into it so uh topic 2.4 is the roles and powers of the president and uh the enduring understanding here is the president has been enhanced beyond its expressed constitutional powers and then the main learning objective is to explain how the president can implement a policy agenda so one of the big overarching things here is the the president's formal powers versus their informal powers and you know really they don't really have a great deal of formal powers you know they are commander-in-chief control the military, uh, they can veto, um, and then we get into a lot of informal powers, all right? Uh, and we're going to go through those in just a second. So first off, to get into the learning objective, how can the president implement a policy agenda? Remember, the president cannot go into Congress and hand them a, a bill or a law or a piece of policy and say, hey, pass this thing. They have to find support from Congress people which isn't too difficult for the president usually, but it's still a process they have to go through. They can't just do it themselves oftentimes, unless they use that executive order thing, which we'll talk about in a minute. So, um, you know, presidents, they have to, <clears throat> there's not a lot of formal ways the president can implement their agenda. It's mostly going to be through support from Congress. And, you know, at the present moment, you've got Joe Biden, who's a Democrat with a Democratic Congress. So it's easy to implement the agenda right now because they're both on the same page. However, in November of 22, if the Republicans take control of the of Congress or just one of them, the House or the Senate, then we all of a sudden get into a, a situation where the president has to has to work with the uh, with the Congress. All right. So uh, <clears throat> the formal and informal powers of the president include, and this is right from the the college board, you've got vetoes and pocket vetoes, foreign policy, uh, bargaining persuasion, executive orders, and signing statements. So let's unpack those. Uh, first off, the vetoes and the pocket vetoes. This is a formal thing that the president has. The vetoes, I think most everybody is pretty familiar with vetoes, regardless of whether you slept throughout the class or you were um, you know, paying attention every day. That's where the president gets a bill, gets a law, and decides, I don't like this, and they don't sign off on it. 
All right. Now, remember, Congress can always override that veto. That's a check they have back on the president. But it is difficult to override the veto. It seems like something that would happen often. But um, <clears throat> really, the number two thirds of the full Congress, two thirds of 535. It's a big number, so it doesn't happen very often, but the veto is a power the president has. Now, the pocket veto is something the president can use, and it depends on the timing. If Congress sends the president something within 10 days of them adjourning, so, hey, we're <clears throat> the last day of the, the session is June 30th, okay? July 1st, we're on vacation until October or whenever they're coming back. If they sent the president something, on uh, June 25th, the president could just let it sit there and it would die because if things aren't enacted by the time Congress leaves a session, then it dies and it has to start all over. So that's what a pocket veto is. It's not an official veto. It's not, okay, I've, I've stamped it no or anything like that. It's just we let it die. Uh, foreign policy. So the formal thing there is the commander in chief and the president gets to make treaties. So they have that ability. And it used to be something you did a lot. Uh, treaties, you don't hear about treaties too often anymore. They're still done. Um, just not as it doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like it's as often as it used to be. But those are pretty easy to understand. The commander in chief, the president is in control of the military. All military decisions go through the president. Um, and the treaties, the president can make those. But remember, they have to be confirmed by the Senate. Okay. Now the informal power here is uh, the executive agreement. And this is something that the president can do with other countries. And it's, uh, it's like a treaty, but the thing about an executive agreement is that it gets around the Senate approval. So if the president has a treaty that they really want to get done, but they know Congress is, or the Senate, excuse me, is not going to approve it, then let's just do an executive agreement. And we get around that little requirement of the Senate. Uh, you know, Truman, <clears throat> excuse me, not Truman, but Wilson, back during World War I, uh, he had went over and negotiated the Treaty of Versailles, brings it back to America in the Senate, and Henry Cabot Lodge refuses to sign it. Now, had he done it as an executive agreement, uh, then they would have just, hey, here it is. Here's my signature, and it's done. And the Senate would have had no say-so. Uh, but that's a power that comes out of the president's formal powers of treaties. Okay. Uh, bargaining and persuasion is an informal power. Uh, and this is what the president has used to get their agenda done. Especially, like I said, if, if, if the Democrats lose control of Congress, the president is going to have to work really hard to try and work with the Republicans to get anything done. And you're likely as divided as we are today, probably nothing's going to get done. But anyways, it's a, a tool uh, where the president can go and offer you know, whatever it is the president wants to offer or you know, can go to the American people and try and get it them to let their Congress people know, hey, we, we want the president's agenda. Uh, that's where the bully pulpit comes from and things like that. Uh, but really, the big thing is going to be the, the log rolling slash making deals and things like that. Um, the, the best example I have is, is Lyndon Johnson back with the Civil Rights Act <clears throat> uh, was trying to get it passed, needed some Republican votes, calls in the Republican leadership from Congress and is like, look, I need I think it was three Republican votes and the Republican leadership thinks, talks a little bit. And they decide, look, we've got some positions in the bureaucracy that we would like to see filled by these people, these Republicans. Uh, if you make that happen, you'll get these votes that you need for the Civil Rights Act. And so they made a deal. And so the president can do that kind of stuff as well. That's that bargaining persuasion. All right. Executive orders. Uh, this is a 
informal thing. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, and it's implied from you know the the, the president's role as the, the chief executive, uh, where they're enforcing the laws and, and operating the government and things like that. But the executive order is something that the president can do to get around congressional approval. Now, please keep this in mind. The executive orders are similar to the executive agreements in that it does not require congressional approval, but they are mostly for domestic stuff, so here at home, whereas an executive agreement is going to be with foreign countries. So the executive order is basically a directive to whatever bureaucratic agency is in charge of that area. Hey, this is what you're going to do. And so, yes, it does come off as a law. It comes off of the force of law because it's going to an agency that can enforce it and that can enact whatever it might be. So it is a way uh, to manage the federal government and get things done when there might be some some gridlock in Congress. Um, but once again, executive orders are going to be domestic. So most of, that, most of the stuff they handle are going to be uh, local in, in America. OK, uh, and my favorite one is from Truman back in uh, the, the 40s after World War Two, where he integrated the military or, yeah, integrated the military. No more black and white barracks and all that kind of stuff. Finally, is the signing statement uh, and the signing statement is an informal power. And this basically is when the president signs a bill. The president can write up how they interpret the law. So basically, if Congress passes a law and the president gets it, he's like, I like this thing, but I don't agree with some parts of it or, or whatever it might be. The president can write up their interpretation, and then that becomes how the bureaucracy is going to enforce it. And so the president kind of has a say-so in how a bill is going to be, uh, how a law, even though they didn't make it, even though they had no, no dealings in Congress with it, they still get it, and they get to kind of dictate how it's going to be enforced. All right, moving on to uh, 2.5. We got the checks on the presidency. Uh, so the learning objective here is explain how the president's agenda can create tension and frequent confrontations with Congress. And so the essential knowledge you got to know, there's three things. Uh, there's conflict with the Senate, depending upon the type of executive branch appointment. And those include cabinet members, ambassadors, and White House staff. So basically, uh, the Senate has to approve most positions. So cabinet positions, you know, those, those the, the cabinet heads, and a lot of the other judges, a lot of the other positions that the president will um, uh, appoint. Now, if it is a Democrat and Democrat, it usually goes through pretty quickly and easily. You know, there will be um, Republicans who will fight and ask hard questions and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, it'll probably get passed. Same thing for a Republican president, Republican Congress. There'll be Democrats who will push and fight back and all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, if the votes are there, they'll get um, get uh, approved. Okay, um, <clears throat> but it can lead to some battles because, uh, especially if it's a you know divided uh, positions. So the president from one party, the Senate from another party. Uh, the president is really going to have to you know, kind of walk a fine line of picking someone that they can get through that that Senate. Uh, so it can be uh, sometimes it can be, a, you know, a, a big battle uh, over who's going to be in those positions. Uh, I feel like a lot of times the Senate does recognize, hey, the, the president needs to be able to get people that they want because that's their right in there. 
and they won't fight on every position, but they'll they'll choose a few to fight on. But that's what we're talking about there. Uh, let's see. Next one is Senate confirmation is an important check on appointment powers, but the president's long-lasting influence lies in life-tenured judicial appointments. So this is the big one. Every judge that is appointed by the president will be there for that judge's life or until they decide to resign. And this is why it's such a big deal and why senators from the other side will always fight a president's choice, whatever it is, because that person gets to outlive and outwork the president's presidency. Okay. So this is why Democrats were so fired up about Trump's three appointments, because those people are still on the, on the court while Trump's out of office. They're going to be on the court for a long time because they're in their fifties, I think. So you have judges serving until their eighties. So they're going to be there for 30 years. All right. That's a long time for a legacy to last. Um, so that's why they get fault so difficult, so hard sometimes. Um, it's because of those life tenures. Now, once again, I think I told you all this in class, just my personal opinion. I think we should get rid of the life and just say like 25 years or 30 years or something like that, um, where it's not a lifetime thing. And that way they would outlive the, the president that, or I should say outlive and outwork or whatever, whatever the word I'm looking for here is. And, uh, then, um, maybe it wouldn't be so contentious. Finally, for this part is the policy initiatives and executive orders promoted by the president often lead to conflict with the congressional agenda. So if a president is governing the government or running the government or however you want to say it through executive orders, they are bypassing Congress. That could upset Congress. That could upset the congressional agenda if the president is doing something that is completely counteracting what Congress is trying to do. So, you know, executive orders aren't ironclad. Uh, Congress can always make laws that bypass them or, or, you know, basically cut them off. They can also um, defund or not, you know, refuse to fund programs that are run by the executive order. So there are options for Congress if the president is using too many executive orders. All right. Next up, 2.6, the expansion of presidential power. So the learning objective here, explain how presidents have interpreted and justified their use of formal and informal powers. And there's a couple things in here. You've got uh, a required document, which is Fed 70, which we'll start off talking about. Uh, and, you know, the justifications for a single executive are set forth in Fed 70. So when this was written, the there, there had been some some ideas tossed about about a presidency. Maybe we have a, a council of three and, and things like that. And so Fed 70 is going to be about how, hey, we need to have a single president. We need to have an energetic president because, and some of the reasons we need this is because one person can make a decision much quicker than three people can. Uh, so that's one of the things. We, and we need an energetic president, someone who is going to, you know, the, the president was was created to kind of be the figurehead of the nation. You know, that's, there was not that not, there was not that figurehead under the Articles of Confederation. So they wanted to be sure they have someone that can be that. And so they want someone that can lead the nation. Um, and so all that stuff is pointed out in Fed 70. Now, once again, like I've said, for every required document, you don't have to quote Fed 70, but you got to know that you got to understand it. And so if you can understand, hey, this was about a single president, how, how important it is to have one person as the president, you're in good shape. Uh, all right. Some of the amendments, the 22nd Amendment is the one that's mentioned, and that is the one uh, that set the term limits. So presidents can serve uh, two terms or 10 years. Remember, if they take over as vice president, depending upon the time frame, uh, they can uh, serve a potential 10 years. But it's never happened, though. Uh, 
Um, some of the other presidential uh, amendments real quick. Uh, the 12th Amendment deals with elections because of the John Adams, Thomas Jefferson situation. And we're not going to elect president and vice president as just the top two. That led to problems. Okay. Uh, the 20th Amendment is going to get rid of the lame duck period. And so we're going to move the inauguration of the president from March to January. So that way, if someone's leaving office, like Trump left office in 2020, uh, instead of it going all the way and stretching all the way to March, where they really have no power, no authority because they're fixing to leave office, let's shorten that time period down. Okay. We stopped talk, talk about the 20, uh, excuse me, the, the uh, 22nd. And then the 25th is going to be what sets the line of succession. And so you're probably pretty familiar with this where the president dies or resigns or whatever, the vice president takes over. And then we get into the Congress and the Senate and uh, then into the, the cabinet positions. All right. The other thing it does is it does set up how, if the president cannot perform their abilities, how the vice president could take over. Uh, it could be as simple as the vice president and the cabinet positions get together and have a vote that the president is not doing what they're supposed to. Uh, and it spells out how the <clears throat> how that can happen, where <clears throat> the vice president can take control if needed. OK, uh, and it also talks about how the president can get power back, how they can demonstrate, hey, I'm back. Alrighty. Uh, finally, for this 2.6 is the different perspectives on the presidential role, ranging from a limited to a more expansive interpretation and use of power, continue to be debated in the context of contemporary events. Very <laughs> broad uh, topic here. Um, just people are going to question the president all the time. The president has taken power uh, to me ever since FDR. Okay, presidents before FDR, they did their thing, but for the most part, they acted within the stipulated roles and rules and and uh, powers that, that were in the Constitution and things like that. FDR took it a little step. He, he, he pushed, okay? Um, and, you know, he went, ran for four four terms and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, so it's uh, just people are always going to question when stuff is happening. Is that the president's responsibility or is that the Congress's responsibility? It's just something that's always going to happen. Um, all right, last topic is 2.7, and you got the presidential communication here. The learning objective says, explain how communication technology has changed the president's relationship with the national constituency and the other branches. So from that, the national constituency is me and you, okay? And the big thing to understand here is that, and you can, you know, you probably know this without me even saying it, but the president has become more able to talk directly to us as, as constituents um, than in years past. And it, it's just an evolution. You know, you had, okay, here's a newspaper story. Oh, we print, they're going to print a letter from the president and people write letters to the president. And then we got into the, the radio. Well, now people can hear the president talk. It, the you know, FDR could talk directly to the American people with his fireside chats and things like that. And then we got the TV where people could see the president now and the president could still talk directly to them. And now we've evolved into the social media where the presidents are going to be on social media and able to talk directly to constituents. Um, and so that's that's actually one of the things we're supposed to talk about is the modern technology, social media, and rapid response to political issues. So because of the, the rapid information exchange, you know, the president is on top of everything. You know, at, well, not on top of everything, but they get information as as quickly as, as possible. All righty. 
and they get debriefed and they're able to, if they need to, they're able to make decisions quickly and easily. That's one of the other benefits of having a, a you know, single president is that they can make decisions quickly and easily. The final thing there is the nationally broadcast State of the Union messages and the president's bully pulpit uses tools for agenda setting. So the State of the Union is something the president is required to do. We make a big deal about it nowadays and it's on TV and all that kind of good stuff. It used to just be a letter to to Congress saying, hey, this is what's going on. This is what I propose. Now it's used to say, this is what I've done and this is what I want to do going forward in the next year. So it, it's kind of a, uh, a, a pitch, basically. Uh, here's my successes and here's what I want to do in the future. Um, and you know, it is, it is that bully pulpit. He gets to talk directly to the American people. He's talking to Congress, but he gets to talk to us as the American people. All right, guys, there is the presidency. Uh, as always, if you have questions or concerns, please make me answer them. Find me, text me, whatever it is you got to do, email, social media. I've given you all that stuff. Uh, find a way so I can get your questions answered and uh, you can score well on this test. All right, guys, I hope all is well as usual, and I'll talk to you later. Bye-bye.